occasionally a book comes along of which the story captivates you and the pull to be bigger and to live bigger literally takes your breath away. This book is called Skin in the Game and it's remarkable not only because you'll read it in one sitting, which I did, but it's remarkable because of the strength, the depth and the drive of the woman behind it. In this episode, I had the extraordinary experience of connecting with this woman. You'll know her legacy, the products she founded, and now you'll hear her story. Jane Warwind is the founder and chief visionary of Dermalogica. In 2016, President Obama appointed Warwind a presidential ambassador for global entrepreneurship to develop the next generation of entrepreneurs both in the US and abroad. Praised as the woman who started a cult, Jane's disruption to an industry that at the time didn't even exist is a story worth hearing. Jane shares the dots along her life's path that when connected together start to form a pretty magical image. Rather than share too much about what we unpacked, let me share that in this one conversation, I fell in love with Jane. And this comes as a warning that you might as well. So immerse yourself in the wisdom, the effervescence and the call to live big that oozes from Jane Werwind. Jane, it is such a delight to be sitting down with you uh, across the waters while you're over in LA and I'm, I'm sitting here on the Gold Coast in Australia, but it's great to be connecting with you. Thanks, Ali. It's great to be here. And uh, we've got pouring rain in LA today, so uh, I hope your weather's a little bit better there in Brisbane or in the Gold Coast, wherever, wherever anyone is listening, um, because uh, we could do a little bit of that, need a little bit of that California sunshine today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hoping it'll, it'll peak out at some point. Look, congratulations on, on your book, Skin in the Game. I Diving into it, what comes to mind for me, there's something really magnetic uh, or inviting in the way that you've written it, the way you've pulled together the stories, but not only the stories. And you say even right at the start, it's not a memoir, but really it's it's something that you would desire for people to take things away and put into their own life. And you've, you've truly done that. And it's uh, I, I know that's not an easy easy feat to kind of get to. So congratulations to to get to that point. Thank you. Well, you've done it yourself, Ali. So you know the journey, and every story is different, of course. And yet the overlap is, you know, in in the writing of it, the telling of it, the sharing of it. So thanks, I appreciate it, and I'm proud of it. Thank you. I'd love to start with just you know growing up in Scotland. Whether you can tell me your story. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think, you know, it's an interesting uh, a lesson that we were chatting a little bit before the recording. You know, you learn a lot of lessons as you're writing a book. And one of the big ones for me was the things that perhaps you thought were the least important in your life or the hardest things in your life. You realize as you think back on them and you see where those dots kind of continued on the page and how they connected through to something much different and bigger and and you realize wow that actually was a key a key thing that happened to me or that was a key pivot that I made or you know whatever it might be I have come to realize especially the hard, the great things are wonderful but it's actually the hard things that you that you tackle or are forced to tackle that often give you the greatest lessons and equip you to have the courage to go forward and face the next thing, which is inevitably coming your way. And I think I could easily tell my childhood as if it was a tragic story. I know I could tell it in a way that people would be, wow, oh my goodness. But for me, I had a magical childhood. I had a, a, a great childhood filled with love and filled with family and filled with um, excitement. So the story of that childhood, I'll leave everyone to interpret, you know, how, how they would feel it was. I was born in Edinburgh, Scotland. I lived in Scotland until I was nine years old. And then my mum moved us, uh, myself and my three older sisters south to England. She was a nurse and um, her dad had Parkinson's disease and she wanted to be with him the last year that he he was alive to nurse him herself which she did 
So we were in Scotland because my dad was a Scot and uh, he met my mum. They met and married within six weeks of meeting each other. Wow. Yeah, I know. Very decisive, which I, I just love that. They were also happened to be in India at the time, which was amazing. Yes, I can't <laughs> can picture my... them coming home six weeks yeah. later. Or, yeah, there are photos of them in the book too, which is is I just had to put that in because my parents were so informative to my life, as I think all of ours are. And so um, they went back, they settled in Scotland and proceeded to have four children, four girls. I'm the youngest of four girls. And in, in 1961, when I was two years old, almost three, I was a month short of my third birthday, my mum was 38 and my dad died suddenly over, the, over a weekend. He had a massive heart attack and then a stroke and my mum was left. Suddenly, shockingly, with no expectation of this happening, uh, and she had to figure out how she was going to keep her four kids together and put food on the table. And they just moved into, literally two months before, moved into their first mortgaged home of their own. And um, my dad died with the mortgage insurance in his pocket, so he never signed it. So she had no insurance. It all sounds dreadful, and I'm absolutely positive it was. The good news was I wasn't yet three years old. I have no conscious memory of it. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm sure, you know, in the subconscious, there's a lot, a lot going on. And what I learned in that, in, that, in that preceding sort of childhood, being raised by my mom, she worked, she went back to work as a nurse. It was her skill set training. She, uh, I wasn't even in school yet, but my three older sisters were. So she, she cobbled together a sort of a patchwork quilt of care. She worked the night shift from seven in the evening till seven in the morning at the hospital in Edinburgh. My sisters sort of juggled in. They'd come home from school at, you know, four o'clock to take care of me. My mum would get a couple of hours sleep. She'd get up at, uh, you know, in, she had to be at work at um, seven in the morning. So she'd get up, leave some breakfast on the table. My sisters would get up, get me organized. It was, it was, it was kind of crazy. Neighbors took care of me. But for me, and I talk about this in the book, that that life was was filled with uh, adventure. When I was four and a half, you go to school when you're four and a half in Scotland, which I think they just can't wait to get you out of the house. It's quite a good idea now. Having had two kids, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> they're but, ready um, to go, right? <laughs> they're ready to go. You're ready for them to go. So uh, I went to school and she tied our back door key around my neck on a piece of soft cotton um, string and I can actually still feel between my fingers that string because I would check during the day to check it was there it was tucked inside my uniform and and the rule was I would come home I walked myself to school and back every day it's crazy at four and a half it was amazing really <laughs> it was quite normal it wasn't like I was the exception and I would um, let myself in at the back door so no one could see me letting myself into the house and my mum's rules were you you can play you play for an hour till your sister's get home from school and uh, don't touch the stove don't go outside and in the winter when it's dark at three o'clock in Scotland don't put the lights on until your sisters get home because obviously she didn't want anyone to know I was on my own mm -hmm. and um that was our secret that was our uh she she gave that to me as a secret to keep and so I felt very trusted very proud very seen very responsible and I would get home from school and I would go into a full-on fantasy game I'd run around grab my sister's wardrobes petticoats especially with elastic around the waist because I could put it over my head like it was my hair you know and let it hang down my back and I would run around the house like I was you know bloody Rapunzel or something and and, and then when I saw the sound of music which I think was 1966 I was you know I was I was one of the Von Trapp children and Maria was looking for us in the house I was in this full-on creative mode completely on my own and I, I could look back at that and think, oh, that was so much fun. And it was. But I also realize now as an adult that I was um, distracting myself from what my fear was. And my fear was that my mum could die or my sisters would be or we'd all be split up. I mean, all the kind of awful things. Wasn't that I didn't think of them. I did. And yet I managed to push through that. And, uh, and yeah, it turned out, turned out pretty well. So that was my childhood. 
<laughs> this duality of responsibility and creativity, this kind mm. of, you know, trust and growing up uh, beyond the four and a half years that you would have been, but also the the time and space with no, um, like often I think with play and kids, it's it's very structured and guided and you do this and do that now, but that, yeah. imagine that just sheer volume of time, you're doing that for an hour Five days a week, you know, that's, yeah. a, that's a lot of time to really be immersed in that that thinking that, that yeah. you also know comes with strong responsibility. Exactly. And, I mean, I, I'm quite sure if there have been nest cams or ring cameras or something, and my mother would have been horrified at what she was seeing me do because one of the things I loved to do was my sister had a, a bedroom. I shared a bedroom with two of my sisters, but my eldest sister had her own. It was a little box room, and it had a closet, a wardrobe that was actually up higher than the floor. I can't really imagine why. We probably had a hot water tank underneath it or something. Anyway, I would get on a chair and climb up into that closet and rummage my way all to the back because I was pretending like in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe that there was a, do- a secret door at the back of that closet. So I would get completely entangled in these clothes that they were hanging, winter clothes or whatever that were hanging in this closet. And I would stay in the back of that closet for like ages thinking, you know, I was so excited, dark, secret, hidden, safe. You know, I'm quite sure that if my mum had watched that on a Nest camera, you know, she'd have sent the Child Protective Services around or something. <laughs> I mean, I'm having pictures of Chronicles of Narnia and all sorts of oh, things that, oh. uh, you know, in that that space and that creativity um, and I love where you said right off the bat that, you know, we there are these dots and we follow them along and it's often not till afterwards that we even can see the picture or, or what they they add to the picture. That yeah. time in both creative thinking but also, and in the book you describe that being a time of problem solving. What if, yeah. what if, what if. Where yeah, do you see that, that kind of dot, um, I guess, you know, being a part or being one of those kind of threads in terms of your business life. Oh, yeah, that that childhood and then obviously everything since. But all of that informed my 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 business style and my personal style. And you're and it's quite right. It's the duality of being really uh, trusted and, and having to come up with solutions if something went wrong. And I would go through this, like, you know, if I lost the key somehow, how, what would I do? And I would play in the garden. Well, that's not a good idea because then you were visible. So, okay, I'll play in the shed. I could play in the shed. That was good. We had a little garden shed. I'll, I'll do that. Or I could play in the garage. I don't know if that's a locked door or not. Maybe not. Side of the house where the windows from the neighbor's house look. I would go, you know, so I had always had a plan. I made a plan. Okay, that's good. Now I've got my plan. Forget about that. I can, I can, you know, carry on now with what I was doing. And I feel strongly in business, one of the key, one of the key strengths is, and in life probably, decisiveness. You have to make a decision. You know, as an entrepreneur, there's no one above you that's going to tell you what the right decision is. No one's going to give you your marching orders. You, you, in fact, the opposite. You have to tell other people what you think would be a good idea when you haven't got a clue sometimes. You know, so I say if you've got 70% of the information, you have enough to make a decision. Okay, so make it. An entrepreneurial mindset is dare, risk and grow. So you've got to go, and if you can't do that, that's fine, but then you're not an entrepreneur because you're going to drive everybody crazy trying to collect enough data to support a decision that you're scared to make. And there are some people that can have all the data in the world and it still doesn't equip them to make that decision. They want more. They want more. And it's never ending. And I, I see that in sometimes in corporate companies where what does the data say? And I'm like, well, all the data in the world has never equaled an original idea. That's only backup for what you think. It's, it's a bit, of course, you should look at data, but that is never going to make the decision for you. Ultimately, you have to dare to risk and by that you grow. And so that that's feeling of um, it, it's going to, I'll figure it out. If I make the, my whole thing was always to the team and I would always be very transparent. Listen, this is what I think we should do. If it doesn't work out, we'll figure it out because we'll know what, why it didn't work out. Right. So we'll figure it out. We're not, you know, dense. We can figure this out. And as a team, we'll collectively do it. And so 
most of the time, it's not that you made the right decision, because sometimes you really don't, but you scooped up and figured it out. You didn't keep pursuing it as if, well, I'm still standing by this, even though I can say it was complete failure. You've got to know when to throw your hands up and say, okay, this is definitely not working. Next, you know, move, move on to the next dot. Because if you think about those dot-to-dot puzzles you do when you're a child, you know, you don't know what it is when you're looking at it. It's just a bunch of dots on the paper. To me, that's life. You just keep making the dots. It's okay. They will all join up. And if you think about those dot-to-dot um puzzles, it's not the dots that make the picture. It's the lines in between that join them together. You're just staring at a bunch of dots. The dots are all there on the page to begin with, but it's how you join them up in the right order that suddenly you say, oh my God, it's a zebra, you know, <laughs> who knew? That's, I, to me, that's how, how I live my life. That's how I have always encouraged my, my team and my, my, my people to, to live their lives. Just keep making the dots. They look random. They're messy. You don't know how the hell it's all going to join up. But trust me, you will ultimately see. And if you made a mistake, just like in those puzzles, if you went from number eight to number 12 by mistake, it's all right. You did it in pencil. Just go back, pick it up. You can. It's all going to be fine. That'll be one of the stripes on the zebra. So it will work out. <laughs> you find something. Figure it out along the way. And it's the yeah. the dare risk and grow and those those elements of um as you say sometimes the daring to make the decision then sometimes it's the daring to say this isn't working uh and to to not stick with something just because you've sunk a lot of time into it or or a lot of effort into it adventure and and daring has has been a big part of of your your life and your world i'm going to ask you to share the the story or the inspiration that you received after a tainted barbecue chicken. So some food poisoning that you, that you had. uh, And you talked about, um, I guess really hearing an inspiration or a message from your father at that time. Only time it's ever happened, Ali, which is, you know, as I said earlier, I have no conscious memory of my father. But of course, I heard all these stories of him. And, you know, he was six foot four and a Scot from Edinburgh with a wicked sense of humor. And, you know, in my head, you know, he he was this dashing figure. and, And of course, he could be anything I projected onto him because he was not this. But I'd never felt... I always felt close to him, but I'd never heard him speak or anything or that I could remember. So anyway, I was in South Africa. I was in a marriage, my first marriage, that was very quick and and uh, we didn't know each other very well. We re- he was he was you know a big partier. I was I was uh, a little more yeah you know, I was much younger and I was more ambitious to to kind of start my career, get going. But I didn't quite know what I was working in a salon, which is great. But I you know I I couldn't see the possibility of of moving forward. Anyway, we we went um, we went to a barbecue at a friend's house. And I ate chicken and um, I got salmonella poisoning and I was really, really sick and I had like a high temperature and, and quite honestly, I was a bit delirious at the beginning. So this could be a full on delirium that I had. But um, my my husband then was was out, you know, out on the town and I was at home and I was really I was really ill. There were no cell phones. We didn't have a land phone. And when I think about it now, of course, that was ridiculous that he left me like that. But I was sort of in you know, I was in that kind of a relationship that wasn't great, I have to say. But anyway, I'm I'm in bed. I'm sweating. I'm running a high temperature and I was lying on my, it was so vivid to me now. I was lying on my left-hand side in bed and it was absolutely visceral. I felt a hand on my shoulder, on my right shoulder. And I remember thinking it was my husband that had come back, you know, so I, I sort of like was aware, I was aware, listening. So, you know, and yet what I heard was not I didn't hear a voice exactly, but in my head, there was a very clear message. I had a very clear, maybe an intuition or a, 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 and I felt it was absolutely my father speaking to me. And it's the only time, it was the only time before since that that's ever happened to me. And I was absolutely clear. And what I was told was, you know, what are you waiting for? Everything you need you have inside you. 
you have to get out of this relationship. This is not going to end well. You need to get up and leave. And at that time, I thought, I can't even stand up, let alone get up and pack a case. What is good? But what I realized was, as a couple of days went by and I did recover, I need to I need to do a reset in my life. I'm not heading in the right direction. I've got to do a reset. I was I was uh, 20 years old. <laughs> I've got to do a reset. I'd emigrated from the UK to South Africa I would, with no family other than the guy that I had married and I had only known him a few weeks when I married him. And I know I've made a mistake in that regard. However, I've got to do a reset. How am I going to do this? And I didn't rush out. I took a few months. I decided I've got to make a plan. I've got to make an exit plan. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get a job with a company in my industry, which was skincare, hair care, the salon industry. And I'm going to make sure it has a company car. And I couldn't even drive then. I hadn't got my license. So I, I just literally decided I'm going to do that. And I trusted my father would somehow help me. And um, the, the longest story, obviously, is in the book, but I did it. And um, I look back now and I realize that was actually a major reset. I think we all go through resets in our life. But that was one that I really, it was like those sliding doors moments, you know, where you realize if I hadn't done that and I'd done this, that would have been completely different. I'm sure I would have worked it out somehow. It would have been different. All good, hopefully. But I now look back and realize for me, I made the right choice. And I think it's interesting right now, Ali, because I feel as, we, as we're in this pandemic and we're still in it, I think this is what's happening globally. We've got, um, so many of us are in a reset. We're saying, wait a minute. And I know you talk about this in your book too, this idea of what am I doing? Where am I going? What do I really want? Is this the biggest life I could be living. And I don't mean big in like some kind of financial way. I just mean meaningful. You know, is this really what I'm meant to be doing? Is this truly what my purpose is? And I probably didn't put as big a word on it at 20 years old. I probably said, what the hell am I you know, meant to be doing? And how am I going to make a living? But, Get a car and a license and yeah, that's <laughs> right. Let's start with that. Let's start with that. Yeah. So you can literally, you can literally leave. You will have a car. So, uh, and a paycheck. So, um, yeah, that was, that was my, my barbecue chicken. Here's the funny thing. I've never eaten barbecue chicken since, <laughs> because if I even think about it, I could throw up. <laughs> so that's a good life lesson too yeah, yeah that's right. exactly yeah <laughs> just be careful how you cook the chicken or where you, where you eat it from but I think yeah. I agree I I think every habit every idea we've had has been shaken up uh through this pandemic and we are given the opportunity um if we choose to have it to really look at all of that and and reset and and reset the sense of purpose yeah. Yeah, intention think, desire yeah. yeah i think it's a once in a lifetime opportunity i think it's like almost like once in a planetary lifetime i think we have a chance to do a reset as a planet i think we have we have a time to get serious about what's happening with climate and what's happening with mass migration and immigration and refugees. I think we have a time to reset everything from that bigger scale all the way down to, you know, do I really want to go back and work in an office space or do I want to stay home with my children or is it now the time? And I'm thinking of all the people I've literally had conversations with in the last few months is now the time to start my IVF program, which I, kind of had put off is now the time to leave a marriage is now the time to start a relationship I mean everything you can imagine right down to is now the time serious that a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago is now the time to get a guinea pig you know which, which, which <laughs> totally. would that be the right time so because listen it doesn't matter what the decision is it can be huge for us or for our child or whatever you know those can be like all life-changing decisions so I think that we are in that reset and I think that in America, anyway, they're calling this the great resignation. And I call it the great reset because I think, especially for women, and probably it's not gender specific, but for a long time now, we have been thinking, this isn't working for me. This amount of work time, the amount of stress, my raising my kids, 
not seeing, traveling, not traveling, whatever it is in your big, messy life. I think we've been questioning this for a long time and not really thinking, well, how, how can I change it? Can I work flex time? It doesn't really work because no one's doing that. And I think we've got a great opportunity right now to really decide what is it that gives us our best life. And the minute I hear someone say, Jane, how do you balance work life? You know, that work life balance. I know that they hate one of those two things in their lives because otherwise it's just a big life. You know, you don't really separate. It's all life. life. And that's where we want to get to, I think. I... I think the opportunity now is to to look at that. I'd love to go back. I mean, I could explore that conversation more and more, but I think this will this will go back to that thread. So from, um, you know, that reset that you had in South Africa, and I know that, and certainly there's more in the story in the book that I would strongly encourage people to to dive into. It is one thing though to to start to look at how can I get on my own feet? How can I start to support myself? Um, it's a whole nother thing to think about how do I set up an own, my own business? How do we step yeah. into that? Can you talk about, I guess, the line between those two dots? Yeah. I, first of all, something to know about me, I believe in magical thinking. So what I mean by that is I believe that we have a greater energy, a greater being than us, and, and it's magical. And you can put a name to that. If, if it's your God, if it's whatever deity you worship, if it's the universe, if it's the power of the planet, if it's just you, whatever, whatever name you put to it, it's all good, you know, as far as I'm concerned. For me, um, you know, I do think I believe there's something bigger than me. So I I trust the universe. I trust that there's a plan for me. I have to think either everything's random or nothing is because it can't be both. So I am guided by the fact that we have summer and autumn and winter and spring and they actually never get screwed up. You know, it gets a bit weird sometimes, but it never, you never had three summers and then you have a winter and that it's always, so that's not random. And the sun comes up and the sun goes down. And I know that we can explain the rotation of the earth around the sun, but it's not random. It's very specific. So I therefore trust nothing is random, which makes me believe in the power of things I can't see and the power of things that I may not understand. And I'm okay with that. I haven't got a clue how to take an engine out of a car and put another one in it, but I know how to drive one. So I rest that there is an engine in it. So, you know, that's sort of my simplistic, uh, sort of deeply transparent process. But I, I, um, I believe that, uh, that you, you, you kind of, you don't have all the information. You move forward because it's right. And sometimes the universe gives you a shove. So after I lived in, I lived in South Africa for four years, I did leave that relationship. I had to wait longer um, than I had expected to because in South Africa, a divorce takes longer. It's a three-year process. So I waited until I secured my divorce and then I left and I emigrated to the United States. Now, here's a funny thing. Well, maybe it's not funny. I applied before that to emigrate to Australia because coming from Britain, the three countries you, you then, this was the 70s, right? So the three countries you emigrated to were either Canada, Australia or South Africa. And I knew absolutely nothing about any of them. I was hopeless. So I... I picked South Africa because at the time when I was looking to emigrate, it was the hottest place on the planet was Johannesburg. That's how ridiculously silly I was and probably still am. However, I applied to Australia and got turned down because I didn't have enough on the point system. You know, I didn't have a university degree. I couldn't speak another language. I didn't have any money. So forget that. And I was bitterly disappointed. I thought, oh no, I'm sure I was meant to go to Australia. I just felt strongly my cousins had emigrated to Perth and I thought, oh, that's wow. But I decided, well, where I'd really like to go is America. But that was ridiculous. And I remember talking to my clients, I was working in a salon, you know, doing nails. I remember talking to my clients and they'd say, you know, what do you want to do? And because I believe in magical thinking, I claim it as if it's already happened. So I would say, I'm moving, I'm moving to America. And they go, oh my, when? 
like, you know, I've got an appointment for a pedicure next Tuesday. When are you going? And I think, well, no, I'm not sure yet. I don't have the date, but I'm, I'm definitely going. So I would, you know, say all this kind of stuff, which I still do, by the way. So I, I really, that was my wish. And then, it, it, and it, again, it's in the book, but it came about that I had an opportunity. I started working for an American company. They were based in Los Angeles. I got a business trip out to LA because they were launching their skincare line in South Africa and they wanted me to lead on education because uh, so, it was sold to salons. I came out to LA. At about the same time, I started dating a guy who I did not know was in process for a green card. His green card came through. Anyway, I ended up emigrating to Los Angeles, as did he. And that's my now husband, Raymond. So we've been together for 40 years. So here's the thing. We got to LA and I know I should have done better homework than this, Ali, but I just trusted there's a great salon industry in America. I mean, come on. I was watching Dallas, the TV series on television. They were all getting their hair done and their makeup done every two minutes. So I can always get work. I've got a skill set in my hands and I can travel with it. And when I emigrated to the States, there was a 10.4% unemployment, it was Reagan's second term, and the salon industry as I knew it for skincare literally did not exist, which is shocking for me to say, and I believe me, I really tried to disprove it when I got here, <laughs> but there were only a few salons, they were all owned by Europeans who had emigrated here from typically Germany, Romania, um, Italy, France, and it was limited to a very sort of select elite few. There were, n there were only seven states out of the 50 that you could even get trained to be a skin therapist. And here I was, you know, and I, I had to trust, well, I'm here now, what am I going to do? And I can always do something. I got my first job at 13 shampooing hair in a salon. So I figure I can always start shampooing hair. It's, I'll be okay. I'll figure this out. I don't care what I have to do. And, and yet the big opportunity presented itself because I thought, well, wait a minute. If there's no one here offering skincare treatments, there must be a big opportunity in education teaching people how to do it which is exactly the company we launched. The company we launched was the International Dermal Institute, which is now separate to Dermalogica, which was our skincare line, is our skincare line. We launched the International Dermal Institute, and now that is still the number one training program in the world. We train 100,000 skin therapists a year in 106 countries. So it's that's still like, you know, it's not a side hustle, it's a main hustle. And so the idea was we would educate people to do the work that I knew how to do in the belief that that would grow the industry because clearly there was a need for the industry. We had very we had great clients, great population numbers. The minute I heard there were 14 million people in greater Los Angeles, I thought, well, that's going to keep me busy for a minute. So, you know, that that's going to be fine. That should be and enough. <laughs> that should be enough. Yeah. And it's as simplistic as this sounds, it really was just one step at a time, linking it up together and building it solidly. And it wasn't as if we intended to start a business when we came. I didn't come with an MBA or any kind of business background. I'm not a cosmetic chemist. Uh, I, I didn't, you know, have an entrepreneur in my family. And I say in the book, unless you count my uncle Keith, who sold washing machines from his garage at a very dodgy sort of situation, but that was it. And, and, but the universe kind of said, this is the country of entrepreneurship and opportunity. I still believe that there's an entrepreneurial spirit in Los Angeles that's unequaled. This is the dream factory. And I strongly believe it still. I see it happening still. And uh, yeah, worked out. It worked out. <laughs> yeah, it definitely <laughs> worked out. One of the uh, pieces in the book, you talk about yourself and Raymond kind of going into business and and I guess really wanting to come into the skincare industry in a quite quite a different way and your uh, branding, marketing, very much did that. One of the things that jumped out to me was was the concept of pissing 80% of people off in order yeah. to get to the 20%. Yeah. Um, and that can sound really great in that kind of rebellion. I feel good. I feel bulletproof. Uh, but it can be hard to deal with 80% of pushback. Um, yeah. 
What was it that drove that and what continued to keep you focused on the 20%? Well, that's a really great question. Um, I think the thing that drove it for both of us, but differently, we had different experiences. Ray traveled um, for five years through Europe and Israel and and had a, a very sort of the, the, that fantastic, which I never, I always say to him, you know, you were just bloody lucky that you could travel and figure out ways to support yourself on the road because I had to go to work. You know, I've, all, I've always worked. And so... Um, he, you know, he came at it from a different place for me. And I talk about this in the book. I mean, all of these stories are, are longer than the book with the lessons that I learned and kind of break it down into the, into the life hacks that it taught me. But the thing that for me was I was uh, growing, I was then 14. I was in a small town in the South coast of England in Bournemouth. And it sounds simple, but I went to see David Bowie in concert right about a month before he launched Iggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. So the album hadn't come out. I didn't know what I was going to go see. It was a cheap ticket on a summer night. And I, and I went with a friend and I just, when he walked out on stage in my hometown where no one did anything remotely, well, to me, out of the ordinary, I thought, good Lord. I mean, if this person can do this, you know, he stepped out on stage in a knitted onesie, barely contained by it, I might say, in his orange hair. I thought, if he can do this in Bournemouth, I can do bloody anything. You know, it was as simple as that. And I, I've always held that bravery in, in my heart and, and thought, you have to also then be prepared to take the hits. And he famously said that too. You know, you, you're not going to get away with it without some really people who don't like what you're doing at all. And then, you know, you've really caused a, an issue because here's the thing. I think, and Raymond came up with a phrase because we started Dermalogica, the IDI, International Dermal Institute and Dermalogica. And Ray always said to me, what's your wish list, for example, for a product? D- d- not what have you seen done already? What What's no one doing? Let's not, we have to know what people are doing. We already knew that we were in the industry, but what is no one doing? And so that was where we came from. And, and we, I said, well, I have an allergy, personally, I have an allergy to lanolin, fragrance and artificial color. So I don't want any of that in the product. If we were to make a product, this is the dream project. Mm. And when I was shampooing hair at 13 years old, I got terrible rashes on my hands from shampooing. And what I learned when I worked at Redkin was that's the formaldehyde preservative in shampoos that triggers that dermatitis. So I don't want formaldehyde preservatives in the product. And I don't want um, I don't want mineral oil because it's inert. And it's, so I had this dream list. I didn't even know if it could be made, but I had the dream list. So I wrote out ideas for products as if they were as if I had already used them. I could, and I've had an ability, I think, because I've lived my life in human touch, I have a very strong tactile ability. So I can, I could describe the product. When we were developing Daily Microfolium, which is our powder exfoliant, it's our number one selling product in the world, every market, I, I could feel that powder when it was dry, I could feel it when it was damp and I could feel it when it was wet and I could feel it when it was rinsed off the skin and the skin felt like glass. You know, I, could, I had all that. So once I had it in my mind, it's like a visualization. As the chemists were, were developing products and submitting them to me to, to try and give my approval, I, it was like picking in a lineup of, of photographs, you know, the person that you know. Well, I don't know that. No, 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 no. Yes, because I had it in my head. I've always worked that way. And so that was that was sort of how we randomly figured out what it was going to be. And so I said to Ray, as we were going through that sort of early staging, uh, my students were testing it and, and they loved what we were doing. But there was a certain amount that didn't. And they tended to be the older skin therapists who were used to European products. And they sort of had this mindset of it's not European, it can't be good. And they liked the big pink jars with the gold lids. And even mm-hmm. though I said to them, it's disgusting to put your fingers in a jar. There's airborne E. coli bacteria in your bathroom. Those jars were invented when people put on creams in their bedroom. Now they're water soluble. You put them on in your bathroom 
bathroom and there's E. coli from the toilet area. So forget it. It's as bad as that. But they were not deterred. They wanted the jar and they wanted to stick their fingers in it. So I remember saying to Ray, I don't know, maybe we should rethink this. A lot of them, like the ones with the really established salons, they really don't like it, Ray. They think it's like silly and doesn't matter. They would criticize me. Why are you talking about the thing, the ingredients you don't use? You should have a um, sort of a secret ingredient that only you use that maybe, you know, your grandmother discovered in Bulgaria or something. Well, I didn't ever had a Bulgarian grandmother. So I said to Ray, I'm, I'm concerned. Should we be taking this on board? And he said, Jane, listen to me. We've got to be prepared to piss off 80% to turn on 20%. And I trust him. I trusted it then and I still trust it now. And I said, okay. And the reason I, I say it and I believe it very strongly, the difference between a product, which is a commodity, and a brand is a brand has a voice and a personality. It has a point of view. It has a position. If I say, um, if I say Kleenex, I'm trying to think of a product that everyone would know, mm. right? Kleenex. It's a bar, it's a tissue, right? I like Kleenex. I think they're great. But do I rave about Kleenex? And the answer is no. Uh, do I trust Kleenex? I do. I like, I trust them. I especially trust their soft touch tissues, which I have to say are very good when you have a cold. But I don't love Kleenex. It, it doesn't strike an emotional element in me. But when I say Mini Cooper or Harley Davidson, or um, Apple, uh, or maybe, you know, David Bowie, and hopefully Dermalogica, it strikes something in me. I feel like that those brands have a viewpoint and a personality. And that means if you are to be a brand and not a commodity, you have to be prepared. You'll have some people that seriously love you, and you'll have some people that probably seriously kind of hate you. And it's a bit like Marmite or Vegemite. You either love it or you hate it. I love it. So that's what I go on. So that's the long, the long road to how you have to be prepared to take on. And don't don't read, don't worry about the hate mail. Just if they don't like it, it's okay. It's all right not to be liked. You don't have to be liked by everybody. You only have to be liked by enough people to make you happy and give you a fulfilled life. And and I think you speak to the emotionality, the personality, the 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 human heart in the brand, the messaging, the connection, um, and really care about those that care about it, and yeah. uh, and the the others that don't. It's, this isn't the spot for them. There'll be a Kleenex or something else that will exactly. fit, fit exactly. that spot. Yeah, yeah. You can, you know, you you'll have products that you like, and that's great. I'm so happy for you, but. I have a point of view and, and I feel very strongly about it and I feel very strongly about the people that support it, our independent local businesses and salon entrepreneurs. Yeah. So the education and then the product, the skincare product, was there a point in time, and there may not have been, was there a point in time where Dermalogica grew up and made it beyond you, beyond Raymond? Where Was there a moment where you kind of went wow this is even bigger than what I had imagined yeah Ray and I used to say to each other we'd see it I remember one time we were we were on a bus in in uh, Malaysia on a coach and we were we were driving somewhere uh, to a hotel on like an airport bus and the bus stopped and um, looked out the window and there was a salon and it had the Dermalogica sign in it and products. And, and I said, oh, my God, look at that. So we took photographs. And, and Ray said to me, God, like, we're a real product. And I said, no kidding. That's like a real product. Malaysia was one of our first international markets. So that was a moment. I can think of lots. And then, of course, you know, when when you you realize that, that people – are talking to you say dermalogica and they don't say oh dermatologica you know which is a common mispronunciation i'd say no the t is silent actually but um people would say oh i use dermalogica or something like that you know then then it was great it was all incremental stages i think though um, now I can feel, I feel strongly and I'm very involved with Dermalogica. I serve as a chief visionary. I'm very hands-on as we develop products and, and education programs. But 
it's good to be part of it. I don't know that they need me to run the business. I don't run the business every day. And I love that. It's a bit like seeing your kids being able to do their own laundry and feed themselves. You think, okay, all right, they're going to be okay. There's some point where you think your kids are going to be okay. You probably went through a few years of thinking they're a total mess. I mean, I don't think they're ever going to be able to do anything. And then you realize, oh, wow, that's kind of great. My, you know, my child read their lease and signed it and has figured out what compound interest is or whatever the hell it is uh, and you realize I think they're going to be okay and it's a mixed bag isn't it because you start to think am I relevant and well yes of course you are however not in your role as it was so what's the next what's the next dot because that's where you've got to go to. Because the goal is not to sit on a dot or stay in a room, as I talk about. I liken this to rooms in, a bu- in my book. The, your job is to move out of that room that you're now familiar with and down the hallway that might be dark in and trust the next room is ahead of you. And when you get in there, it'll be, if not better, it'll be different and you're going to learn from it. The concept of the rooms uh, is is really magical. In the book, you kind of talk through the different different rooms: the bravery room, the why room. Um, if I go to the the imperfect and not even necessarily that room, and you talk about cringeworthy moments throughout yeah. throughout your life, throughout the the work that you've done, do yeah. you have a and failure is not the right word, but I'll use it here. Do you have a favourite failure or, or a cringeworthy moment? And what I mean by that is there one that you learnt something from or it it was the the pivot that actually you needed. Uh, is, there, is there one that comes to mind? I've got so many. It would be hard to pick just one. I mean, we, I think we've all had cringeworthy m- moments. I mean, obviously, as I as already shared, um, my first marriage, which I could easily portray as a cringeworthy moment in the fact that I, you know, I was really, you know, it was, it was very difficult and challenging. However, probably because I'm also an optimist, I look back on that and I think, well, actually that worked out really well because I would not have gone to South Africa, would not have had that experience. I wouldn't have had the shove to, to actually, you know, so I look on it as a, as a sort of ticks the box for a really great thing, but it doesn't mean it wasn't very hard at the time. But I've got cringeworthy moments. I mean, I remember one time from a very small one, I'll give you a small one and then a, and then a bigger one. Um, I decided... <laughs> I decided in a class I was teaching very early on in skincare that um, I wanted to try and differentiate the masks that we were applying in the class. And we didn't use artificial color or anything like that. So I bought food coloring because I thought I'm going to try and I was teaching a very very, uh, entry level class. I want to try and make a difference between the products that we would use on a a drier skin, a more compromised, uh, moisturized skin and, and and a skin that's overproducing oil. So I decided I would tint the one uh, with yellow food coloring and the other one with blue. No problem. So it was a gel mask. So we put it on and I'm explaining as we go over the, with, the, with the gel on. And um, and remember, this is way before computers or the internet or anything. This is like your ultimate visual aid. And so that's all good. And I talked about that for about 20 minutes. And then I said, well, let's take off the masks now. And of course, you ca- I did not realize you cannot remove food coloring from the skin. Um so I had half the class looking like a really bad self-tan and the other half looking like Smurfs. And the only way we could get it off is literally the skin has to exfoliate and you can't scrub it off. It will take two or three days to work off. So I gave everyone a free class and said, look, I'm really, really sorry. And I mean, some of them were pissed off and some of them thought it was funny. So it was okay. So that was a cringeworthy moment because I really felt like they're never coming back. They think this teacher's a complete idiot. But you, you've got to own it. I mean, you have to own it. And some people have a sense of humor about things. And I'm sure stuff. it was beautifully moisturized. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The coloring did not affect the, the <laughs> impact of the mask, which I did try and stress that benefit. Um, I've, I mean, I can also think of the first time I ever did a full leg wax and, and my client, honestly, um, she was a lovely client. She became a good client, but I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And by the time I got the wax over her entire leg, I completely chickened out, excused myself for the room, from the room. I said, excuse me, I just have to just step out for a moment, walked out and said to the front desk, I'm going home. I'm never, I'm never coming back. 
I'm in the wrong job and I have to leave. And they said, no, 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 wait a minute. Didn't your client just go in for a full leg? And I said, yes, and, and she's in there, so someone has to finish it. And they just, the front desk said to me, no, 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 you are the only skin therapist. You have to go back in there. No, no, she's grabbing me by my sleeve. You have to go. And I did. And I said to her, I'm so sorry, I can't, I hope I never meet you again for the rest of my life because you're going to be really upset with me. She actually became a great client. However, I had to learn how to wax. So those are small cringeworthy moments. But then there were big cringeworthy moments because we launched in in Taiwan, for example, one of our first markets, and we're told that, you know, we couldn't launch it as it was. Dermalogica was too American. Uh, no one understood that we wouldn't talk about skin type, only skin condition. No one understood that we did not use models. We only used people that worked for Dermalogica. They had to be real people with real skin that really used the product. We didn't, you know, use any uh, retouching or anything. They said, we have to launch it differently here. Our market isn't the same. So we trusted them and they launched it differently and they used the word beauty which we never use and the product completely bombed and we lost money and it was very hard because we didn't have the money to lose but after six months Ray and I did a reset and said this just isn't working here's the deal we understand that every country every market is going to be different culturally however Dermalogica is a person. It's like a person. You can't change the personality of the person. We are deferential to customs in other countries when we travel, but you don't change who you are. You don't try and pretend you speak the language when you don't know a word of it. That would be insulting. So we decided from now on, when we launch in a country outside of the States, we go in as ourselves. We partner with people who are on the ground locally, but we have to go in with our personality and, and trust that if we're doing something that resonates in one market, it will resonate in the next. And, and we trusted it and it worked out, but it was a very tough lesson to learn. Yeah, I imagine the the pull, the tug of war between, okay, no, they know I'm not there, um, questioning, but that resolve to come back to now we know that yeah. can then set that up for, for future deals, future countries, future yes. conversations as yeah, well. Yeah, and then you can double down on your decision because you know it was the right one. Yeah. I want to go to um, the the shift in and, and essentially you created an industry that wasn't there. You talked about that and becoming um, number one in that industry. There is one article that you mentioned in the book that you framed the article uh, and the headline of that is the woman who started a cult. What was it about that article? Uh, what, what was it that stood out for you that moment in time that had you frame it? I love that article. Best headline ever. Um, I, I got a call uh, from the Sunday Times in London, which growing up, you know, we could never afford the Times. I mean, that was like a really posh newspaper. <laughs> and we didn't really get regular papers. I mean, that was, you know, that was an, an, a luxury, really, an expense. So I was super excited that the Sunday Times wanted to do a piece on us. And yet I, I know quite bluntly, you know, British journalism can be really tough, really, that's hard, you know, you've got to have your wits about you. And uh, my team actually said to me, my, my comms team, communications team in the States actually said, look, this is great, but it's really tricky. and We don't think you should do it. And I said, why? And they said, well, because, you know, it could be sort of a bit of an expose piece, especially Los Angeles. People tend to come to LA and write things like, oh, you cannot believe the crazy people in LA, their pets have plastic surgery, which which is complete nonsense. I've never seen anyone's pet with plastic surgery. <laughs> so, but you know, you, we've all seen that kind of thing, you know, oh, guess what they've done in crazy LA. And it would be a Hollywood story perhaps. And I, and we, we don't ever talk about, about that, who uses our product. That's not what it's about. But I had a really good feeling because I just thought, well, you know, we have I'm going to trust it. So I said, I'm going to trust it. So the journalist flew out and was going to spend 45 minutes with us. Uh, I And I, we, you know, we went and got her and brought her to Dermalogica. We didn't send a car. We sent someone from Dermalogica to bring her. And she, she ended up spend, spending the day with us. And I didn't know how she was going to write this. I didn't know what the position was going to be. I asked her, how did you how did you come to even want to write about us? And she said, well, the editor had come into her 
into her office with a bottle of our product and it was our body hydrating cream and banged it down on her desk and said, look, I don't know what it is about this product, but it's like a bloody cult. When people start using it, they don't want to stop. Find out if there's a backstory. So that's what brought her to LA. And I and then I laughed because I said, actually, there's a funny backstory because when we launched in Germany, we were reported by our competitors as sort of brainwashing people who used our product because apparently everyone started using, when they used Dermalogica, they couldn't sell them a different product. They just really saw results and they really liked it. So we were literally given documents by the German government to sign a document that we were not leading a cult. We specifically were asked if we were leading Scientology movement through technology we said no and we, you know as as you know great as that might be that's not what we're doing it's you know about skincare so that anyway, goes in the the drawer of paperwork you don't expect from government, yeah, government exactly. officials so I told the journalist this story and I mean I'm sure you can tell from from our time together today I'm deeply transparent I mean so I do tend to you know sort of share everything and I didn't know how she was going to write it when she left I said to her so did you get what you wanted? And she said, yeah, I, th- I think I did. And I said, great. And I said, am I going to be upset? She said, well, you'll have to tell me when you read it. And I thought, okay, well, we'll see. The headline of the article was the woman who started to cult. And it was a great piece that captured our energy. And it talked about our skin therapist and the local entrepreneurs that own the salons that we sold our product to. I really loved it. And I was thrilled. And so that's the only one I've ever framed I love the title and it reminds me, don't be afraid to be yourself. You know, Oscar Wilde said, be yourself, everyone else is taken. You know, trust that. And if and if people don't like it, you've got to live with that too. But guess what? If you're doing something that speaks to your heart and you know what you're doing has your true intention in it, that's good. That's enough. That's plenty. And it's almost you get to own the word cult and get to embrace that rather than have it something that's kind yeah. of thrown at you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I thought, well, now, you know, now we really are definitely that because the Sunday Times said so. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that's incredible. What, and, and I guess I'm interested if there's any kind of really practical things, no doubt it's kind of changed, but what is it that continues to give you your drive and energy? What are the things that, because we can have a purpose and a vision, we can be really excited about things, but we can also be exhausted and tired yeah. at the same time. Uh, practically, what do you do to to continue to be able to turn up each day, make the decisions, get excited by by the big life that you have? I think that whatever you're doing, well, I know, I shouldn't say I think, I know that whatever you're doing, it has to mean something. It doesn't have to be something, you know, grandiose or huge or something that's, you know, the press want to talk about. That is all, you know, it's not even icing on the cake. That's all, um, you know, sort of, that's your own PR story and you can't fall in love with that. You've got to, you've got to be in love with the reason you did it and the reason better be good. And for me, the bigger why, if you want, of the why, we not what we do, how we do it, but as Simon Sinek said in, in his book, you know, why do you do it? And I think in order for something to have a really deep, lifelong love affair with, with your heart, it has to be something that matters to other people. It has to be something that benefits others. It can't be about chasing the money or chasing the fame. I think that's going to be elusive and short-lived at best. It has to be, how does what you do, or what you will do, or what you want to do, how will it benefit others? It could be one person that it benefits. It could be, but someone other than yourself. It could be your one, your child, or your, you know, partner. It could be thousands of people. It, it doesn't matter. That is huge. And if it doesn't speak to your heart and connect your your brain, which is your education, your hands, which is you're going to do something, and your heart, I don't think it's it's a summer. I think it's then a summer fling. It's not a lifelong love affair. And your purpose is your lifelong love affair. So no matter how long it takes, hunt for it, look for it, 
It is there. There is nothing random. Inside you is your bigger why. For me, it's not about beauty. It's not about pampering or pretty. I wouldn't still be in love with that idea. It's about helping women because 98% of skin therapists are women. It's about helping women be financially independent and live a self-determined life through their own entrepreneurship or working for an entrepreneur. That's what gets me up and drives me every day. And um, tomorrow, my book, you know, I'm doing a book launch event and signing at at my local bookstore. And And I said to the publisher, I'm doing it in my local bookstore. That's where we buy our books. That's where they do the poetry reading. That's where, especially during this pandemic, that local entrepreneur is the glue of our community. And that speaks to me, my bigger why. And and that's what you have to find in, in yourself. It's definitely there. It is already inside you. It's baked in. And now you, comes the treasure hunt of finding it. It is indeed a treasure hunt. And in this time, as we said right at the start, this this reset, we've got the chance to, yeah. to hold up that mirror and explore it. You have a, a real heart for supporting and guiding entrepreneurs and and even where you talked about you started in the education space and have you know over a hundred thousand um salon owners and and therapists uh you also have a foundation called found that supports entrepreneurs can you tell me a little bit about the work that found does and uh and what what's next for that foundation thank you i'd love to um the word found is a very important word to me because I believe when, when like finding your purpose, you know, and being a founder, or the word key has always threaded through, through my life in different, in different, you know, texts, contexts. And I think also when we're seen and when we're heard, we feel found as a person. You know, we feel that we matter. We feel that we're, we're somehow relevant and so this idea of being found is very important to me and especially especially for me for women for people from underserved communities for immigrants i've i've been one of those three uh, for people uh, who are in the lgbtq our community who often don't feel seen or heard or have a place everyone who's ever felt that feeling of being hidden or shut down or unseen or shut out. Um, I feel so strongly that those are the voices we must champion. And so for me, because of my experience and what I can bring to the table, it's the local entrepreneurs who are often not just unseen, we may know of them, but we don't frequent them. We don't necessarily really work hard to to choose them as the place we go and buy our groceries or go and buy a book or go and buy, you know, anything, the local florist, the local mechanic. For me, especially people with a skill set in their hands. That was my mum. She was a nurse. That's me. I'm a skin therapist. My sisters are nurses and one is a lab technician. We all have an ability to do something. I think for our local florist, our dog groomer, our salon, our baker, our, you know, these are the businesses that are not just, this is not just a, a job to those people. This is their whole dream. Every time I see one shuttered in the pandemic, you know, business closed, I know that's not just a a, a lease that's been closed. It's a a dream. That's that person's life and their family probably work for them and half their cousins and most of the people they know, because that's who you hire when you first start. I know that story and I want them to be found. I want us to find our local businesses, shine a light on them and talk about them. Because the other big thing is that salon, that dog groomer, that florist, this is the glue of our community. It's not just that they're selling a service or a product. It's that we go in them and we find each other. We find our community, our neighborhood. I don't want to live next door to the Amazon warehouse and shipping center. 
I want to live next door to Cafe Lux and Farm Shop and Diesel Bookstore up the road. That's where I like to go. So let's never lose sight of that. And let's make sure that they're all found. And 100% of the proceeds, the profits from this book, Skin in the Game, goes to support local entrepreneurs and support those, those businesses. We support them through Found by education we support them with connection to each other because that's really important and we support them with funding so um yeah foundla.org anyone just look at what we do we also supply that blueprint to anyone who wants to replicate it in their city or town it's free we don't sell it we can tell you how we set up the nonprofit. it's a 501c3 how we partner with people who provide all the services that we offer and uh, that blueprint is free and available and we'd love to hear from anyone who feels they want to now pay it forward or do something to help Uh, let's get everyone back on track so those businesses are still around when we come through all this have them found I love that that word in that context and if you're right if we have learned anything we've learned the value of community Uh, we've learned the value of the people that are next to us the people that are around us um, yeah yeah in in this time yeah and didn't we miss our salons you know that was the first thing I heard everyone saying (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah when everyone said that because yes absolutely we did and it's not just about getting our hair cut or our color done or whatever it's about human touch and human connection and I think if there's one thing we've really had you know sort of a a really uh, a reset on is this idea that the human connection is more important than probably we ever realised. Yeah, I think we've found who's who's the essential services <laughs> in amongst all of that. Yes, yes. everyone yeah. is touching someone in some way. Those yeah. are workers yeah really powerful uh look jane i mean i we could have another three hours together but the i will absolutely be sharing the book it is delightful magical magnetic as i said at the start i want to wrap up with the final question the name of this podcast is called standout life when you hear that term what does it mean to you to live a standout life I love the term by the way ali and i love the name it means to me stand up it means to me speak out. It means to be never hide or be shy of who you really are or your true story. You are more than enough. And by being your fully authentic self, you will stand out. There's only one of you. You're completely original. I'll sign up for that. Thank you so much, Jane. It's been such a delight. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks very, very much. Stay safe, stay well. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life. Life.